You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Wonderful to be together this morning. Thanks for being here. Um, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors, if we haven't met. And uh, it's just wonderful to have you with us here as we kind of kick off that time of the season. It's get this, uh, this week kicks off the holidays, right, for the whole uh, end of the year. So there's kind of a tone that's being set even now. Looking forward to uh, this week and thanking the Lord and trust you'll have a wonderful time with your friends and family this week. Listen, we are in a series on 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to continue that up really till the week before Christmas. We'll finish then. Um, And today we are in chapter 4. We're looking at verses 9 through 12. So if you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. You can take that out and turn to page 574, page 574, as we look at the, uh, these three verses, uh, really four verses, I guess, together uh, today from 1 Thessalonians. So I'm going to read the passage, and uh, then we will just kind of walk through each verse and make some application to our lives. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is God's holy word. Now, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity of this section. We thank you for the practicality of this section. And we pray that we might apply it in our lives in a way that would glorify and honor you. We don't want to just be interested in your word. We want to be changed by it. So King Jesus, we pray that you would move in our midst and conform our hearts to your own as you apply this scripture to us by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the passage we just read is really still under the overall theme of the passage we studied last week. So if you look at verse 1, you see he says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. So the, the overall kind of theme of this section is about how to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. What does it mean to please Him with the way we live? And last week we saw that the emphasis was uh, on the call to avoid sexual immorality. The, this is a new church 
in Thessalonica, which is in Greece. They are uh, probably less than a year old as a church, so all of these people are quite new Christians, and they came out of a world of sexual promiscuity, and so he calls them to sexual fidelity and integrity. And in the passage we're looking at today, he's doing the same thing. He's still calling them to live in a way that pleases the Lord. And he, he points to two ways, sort of two activities, two approaches to uh, pleasing the Lord. The first one is uh, they are to love one another. That's in verses 9 and 10. They are to love one another. So he says, you please the Lord as you love one another. In verses 11 and 12, he tells them something really interesting. He says, live quiet lives, mind your own business, and work hard. And a way in the modern vernacular that he's, he's talking about here is he's saying, stay in your lane. Keep your eyes on your own paper, as my teachers used to tell me during test time. So what I love about the passage we're looking at today, and really last week as well, is that pleasing the Lord is not really some mysterious, mystical, hyper-spiritual sort of thing. Last week, it was just don't have sex with people you're not married to. Very simple. This week, it's very simple. Love other people. He's talking about the church. We'll see that in a second. So live in a way that is loving to those around you and just do what you're supposed to do. Just mind your business. Settle down. Take a deep breath. Keep your eye on your paper and focus on what God's given you to do in a daily, on a daily way. It's very simple. Love others and focus. So we're going to look at these two points today about pleasing the Lord. First of all, love one another. He says in verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, this this term that the New Testament's originally written in Greek, and this term for brotherly love is a term that you know. Uh, it is the Greek word is Philadelphia. It is which is known as the city of brotherly love. Arguably the most ironic name for any city in the U.S. The city of brotherly love. And so, what this word is, it is it speaks of familial love. It's brothers and sisters. It's not just brother. It's 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 an inclusive term that really means sibling. The way one would love their siblings. And here's what's interesting: in secular Greek, in the time of this writing, this word was used to refer to to actually refer to family love, the kind of love that might be expressed from siblings. Some of you will see your siblings this week or maybe next week, and I hope it is a season of Philadelphia as you experience time with your family. But Paul sort of co-ops that term, which is used to refer to how family uh, love is expressed from siblings, and he applies it to the church. And in so doing, he is making a profound theological point. He's saying the church is family. The church is your new family. The church is your spiritual family. The church is your forever family. The church is your eternal family. And in a minute, he's going to talk about how we practically are to care for those who are in the family and so I love how this verse, uh, verse 9, is translated by N.T. Wright. He translates it, now, about charitable concern for the whole family. 
That's what he's speaking about. Charitable concern for the whole family, the spiritual family. He's calling them to care for their family in practical ways. And here's what's amazing. In verse 9, he says, I really don't even need to write to you about this. You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Here are brand new Christians. And he's not saying you don't need a teacher or you don't need instruction. He is, after all, writing them uh, instruction. So he's not saying you've totally arrived, you need no teachers. He's not saying that. But here's what he is saying. You have been, and the word is literally, God taught. You have, you, I have no one to write for you, to you because you have been God-taught to love one another. What he's saying is in these early weeks, these early months of your faith in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you, and He is teaching you. He is training you. He is giving you new desires. He is conforming you to His Son. The, the, the Bible says they turned from idols to the living God, and the living God is alive in them, and He is giving them love for one another. This is one of the surest signs that a person has the Holy Spirit living within them. When they're converted, they have the Holy Spirit. One of the surest signs is that you begin to love people in a way that you did not before. You begin to have desire to serve and care for and love others, especially those, what he's talking about here, in the church, your fellow uh, church members. So God himself is changing them. He is teaching them to love one another. And uh, note that this doesn't happen in isolation. This happens in community. So you can only love one another and express that when you are with one another. The church is joined together, and in contexts like this, love and growth often happens in, in rapid and profound ways because they are in a context where they're being opposed for their faith. So sometimes what happens when there's opposition, uh, when, when it gets darker, when the enemy is resisting the church in stronger ways, the people of God pull together and care for one another. There is that sense. It's like when a, uh, sort of like when a disaster, a natural disaster hits, and all of a sudden people are helping their neighbors, they're giving them food, they're going over and serving in very practical ways, in ways oftentimes that don't happen um, on a daily basis. But this is kind of what's happening there. The, the people have come to know Christ, and they're being resisted by their culture, and they're loving one another in a beautiful way. And uh, so this happens together as they are together. And their love is spreading. Verse 10, for uh, that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia, but we urge you brothers to do so more and more, to do this more and more. So you notice that their love is not only for one another, but it's spread. It's spreading as people go out from them. There are other churches uh, in Macedonia. Paul writes this letter from a church, in, another church in Macedonia. So there's evidently a connection with other believers in other places, in other cities. And uh, they're not isolated. They're not isolated as individuals. They're connected to the church. That's the only way you can express love. You cannot really love people if you do not interact with them. And not only that, but as a church, they are connected to other Christians outside their church. And the way we do that today is, one way we do that is through missions and church planting and partnership, connection with other believers and other churches. 
We recently shared at a members meeting that we are, this was maybe three weeks ago or so, we shared in a members meeting that we are in a process of peacefully separating from Sovereign Grace Churches, a partnership that we've been involved in since the planting of our church. And if you're a member of the church and weren't here at that meeting, you can get the recording of that simply by emailing Tim. Tim at gracechurchfrisco.org. Tim at gracechurchfrisco.org or call the office and we'll help you uh, get that. But we are still committed to loving and connecting and partnering outside of our church just as they were doing there. There's a need to, to, have, uh, to, to have mission with other churches as they did, to have accountability, to have help, to have encouragement, to give support to others at all times. So in, in early in 2020, we'll start talking about that and exploring what could be our next step together as a church in partnership. But this is important, that they love one another and that their love spreads throughout Macedonia to other Christians. Now, it doesn't say to other churches. I'm sort of assuming that. Uh, But it's to other Christians and to other churches. This is really a stunning section of the book because Paul says, we don't need to teach you about loving your brothers and sisters. God is already doing that in you and through you. God has taught you, so keep it up. Do it more and more is what he's saying. Now, as I think about this passage, I think about how do we live this out? This is a really good question for each of us. How do we live out this more and more? Because I would say it's true of Grace Church as well. Um, There's a lot of newer people here that are getting involved and meeting people and that sort of thing, but I would say there is a history of folks loving one another, but God calls us to love each other more and more as well. So what would that practically look like for you? How is God calling you to love your fellow believer, your fellow brother, your fellow sister more and more? Who in your community group can you express tangible love and care toward? Who could you express tangible love and care toward? If you're not in a community group, then in terms of loving at Grace Church, that's your next step. That's your next move right there, is to get into a small group where you can have a context for relationship, where people share their lives, share their burdens, where people encourage one another, where people practically help each other with family needs, with personal needs, with spiritual needs, with even material needs, where we can help one another, where we can express our love in a tangible way, not just a feeling, not just a concept, not just a philosophy or idea, but life on life in the trenches together. So think about someone. I I find when I read about passages about love in the New Testament, it's always, love is always gritty and earthy and real. It's never theoretical. It's not a Hallmark card. It's certainly not a Hallmark movie. Uh, It is real life. It is real life over the long haul when it's not easy. That's love. It's a commitment and a devotion and a sacrifice for the good of another. And it's just so easy to hear, oh, Paul, they loved each other, the Holy Spirit. Great. Yeah, I feel love too just reading that. No, God wants us to tangibly express love to someone. So I find it helpful not to just think of the church as a whole or even my community group as a whole. Now, there's a place to love our neighbor that doesn't know the Lord, but that's not what he's talking about right here. This is brotherly love, familial love in the church. So I think it's most helpful to think of one person. And I'd start with the community group, but you're free to go beyond that. But I would start there. 
Who is one person in the church that is in need of practical love, care, that I could support, that I could encourage in a tangible way? Who is that and what would that be? What would that look like this week or the week after? Love one another more and more. I, the, he gives this, pat, this emphasis more and more. In verse 1, he said that, how we are to walk and please the Lord just as you are doing more and more. And here he says here, we urge you brothers to do this more and more, to love others, to love beyond your borders as well, but to love more and more. The next point he makes is really to stay in your lane. Verse 11, so love each other more and more, let that spread beyond you, and aspire to live quietly to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So now Paul is adding some guidelines to this love business in the church. This church is a loving church, and actually there's some concerns about how they understand love and how they're expressing it. And so he is giving them some guardrails for how to really live to please the Lord, and to live lovingly towards others. He says, live quietly, mind our own affairs, and work hard. Or as Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases this, these three phrases he uses, stay calm, mind your own business, do your own job. Stay calm, mind your own business, do your own job. Those are not the kind of things we expect to hear about radical Christianity, radical devotion, sacrificial living. But I want to say, though these are simple things, they are what makes all the difference uh, in, in bringing change to those around us, to love people, and as we love them, to stay in your own lane. I love this phrase, stay in your lane, and it's, it's, it's a popular phrase that's been used for a while, but I love it most of all in the AT&T commercial. This is where I just absolutely love it. This has nothing to do with this. Well, actually, I'm going to make a point out of this. Um, <clears throat> but there's an AT&T commercial. I didn't even know who the commercial was for. I've seen it, but I couldn't even remember, so it didn't really work. Uh, I just remember the characters and what they said, but it's in the one about okay is not okay. And it starts with a guy who's getting a tattoo, and there's this... Uh, kind of tattoo artist that's a cross between Chris Christopherson and Jeff Bridges, kind of a guy, and he is saying to him, hey, so is this your first t tattoo? And the guy says, yes, and the tattoo artist says, well, that, it's going to turn out okay. And the guy says, wait a minute, you know, he's about to put something on his arm permanently, what do you mean, just okay? And the guy says, yeah, absolutely, I am one of the tattoo artists, tattoo artists in the city or whatever. And he goes, wait, wait a minute, you mean one of the best, right? And the guy says, well, yeah, something like that. And so then he takes the little buzzing thing, I don't know what it's called, but bzzz, and he starts to tattoo him. And the guy says, wait, 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 aren't you supposed to draw it first? I mean, he's just going to go put permanent ink just on the guy's arm freehand. And he says, wait, wait aren't you going to draw it first? And then the guy just so perfectly delivers the line, stay in your lane, bro. That's what he tells him. 
And I just thought, if there's ever a case where it's good to get out, you're not out of your lane. When someone's about to freehand something permanently on your skin, it is in your lane to raise your hand and say, no, this is my business. The artist is saying, like, I'm the expert, so you stay in your lane, I'll stay in mine. But the reality is, if it's your skin, your arm, it is always your lane. So he misuses the phrase, but you get the idea. Um, and... and, and the reality is that many of us as Christians can get excited about all kinds of things that aren't our business. And we can get all amped up about all kinds of stuff that doesn't pertain to us. And we can burn a lot of time, we can burn a lot of emotional energy, and the reality is we can burn our witness. And that's part of what he's concerned about here. So he says, live quietly, verse 11, and aspire to live quietly. This is one of the most counterintuitive verses um, in the book, because what he is saying is, make this your ambition. That, that's how the NIV translates it. Make it your ambition to live quietly. That is not, in America, how we think about ambition. Live quietly. He's saying, set your sights high. Dream a great dream. If you can believe it, you can achieve it. Live quietly. That's what he says. That is what you should be ambitious for. Now, a quiet life doesn't mean a passive life. We are to be active in loving others. That's what we've already heard about. But there is a beauty to quiet living. And all the moms of toddlers in the room said, amen. Here's what he's saying. Hey, Thessalonians, just being a regular person who lives for Jesus in the mundane day in and day out is a lofty ambition. It's a high goal that few attain and few reach. And it is not how we think of influence in our culture. It's not how we think about making a difference In our culture, if you want to make a difference, you got to, what do we think? Draw attention to yourself. You got to build a platform. You got to be a social media influencer. You got to come on, make some noise. Paul says, you know what? You should have an ambition to live a quiet life. Most of us are called to live out our influence by faithfully executing our normal daily duties. But we don't like that. I don't like my normal daily duties. I want something great. This is how revival comes. This is how a family, how a city, how a nation is changed by regular folk executing their daily duties for the glory of God in the power of the Spirit, just showing up day in, day out. You'll hear this today uh, because this is a classic sports cliche. You will hear a coach um, interviewed who will say something like this. You know, hey, what do you have to do in the second half? You're up by two touchdowns. Uh, And like that guy always wants to be talking to someone when they're trying to get back out there, right, for the third quarter. But, hey, what do you got to do? You got a two-touchdown lead. What are you going to do in the second half? We've just got to execute. We need every man to do his job. 
We need to not overplay, try too hard. We just need to execute. We, we simply need to take care of our business. That's what they'll say. Just execute. We've got to take care of our business. That's what they want on the football team. They don't need the quarterback, and they don't need the wide receiver out stirring up a bunch of controversies, talking like a fool, saying all kinds of stuff to draw attention to themselves. If you want to win, what you need is you need everybody on the field doing their job, nobody else's job, being faithful to their role, taking care of their business, living quietly, not making a lot of noise. This is the power of the gospel in mundane, everyday life. This is the glory of faithfulness. The glory of faithfulness. We want the glory of the magic moment, the glory of the big win, and those moments come in life. They are there for sure. But the reality is the Christian life is mostly lived in the trenches. It's mostly the mundane, everyday faithfulness to Jesus. And when you make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, here's what happens. Verse 12, you will find that you walk properly before outsiders. This is part of our witness, to walk properly before outsiders, to do our job, to do our thing, to be quiet, in an appropriate way. doesn't mean never speak up for Jesus. doesn't mean you never, you know, do something out of the norm. But it means your overall life is just doing what God has called you to do. These Christians are being watched. They are experiencing persecution. They're experiencing pushback. And they are being watched. They're being watched by their family because they left their idols. They're being watched by people at work because they act differently. They're being watched by their neighbor. And so God gives them an ambition. Hey, you want to live in a way that's, that, that represents before outsiders, that represents Jesus before outsiders. So think about how you're living quietly, how you're just living a normal life. One commentator said that Paul is calling believers here to, quote, behave according to accepted standards of secular society, such as the civil order of society, not infringing on the rights of others, the integrity of financial self-support, and providing for one's own family. Wow. He's calling, what he's calling them to be is a faithful citizen, a good neighbor, a reliable person in your life that you are contributing to the social order of society. They've, now, they're leaving idols, their sex life isn't like everybody else in society. Their worship life isn't like everybody else. But on the points where, where we are to live quietly and not draw attention to ourselves, be a faithful citizen, provide for ourselves, provide for our family, respect other people, respect their rights. He's saying these are the kind of things that really matter in your witness before outsiders. Living quietly is not sexy. It's not splashy. It's not tweetable. We're not going to have a big conference where all the Christians are going to show up. Make your ambition a quiet life, and folks are running to participate in that. But this is what brings about a quiet revolution in a family, a church, in a city. In the Bible, when you read the Bible, what you find is that God's overall plan, we get the highlight moments, we get the highlight reels in the Bible for sure. 
But for every miracle, for every battle won, for every moment of glory, there is day after day after day after year after decade after century where you get no report in the Bible of people just living quiet lives in Thessalonica, faithful to show up at work, faithful to do a good job, faithful to love their wife and kids, faithful to take care of their property, faithful to vote and pay their taxes, faithful to help their neighbor, just the regular stuff. There's a glory in this that Paul is pointing out. In the Bible, there are those great moments, but here's what you find. God doesn't leverage great abilities and rare talent nearly as often as he leverages everyday faithfulness. I'm not trying to squelch anybody's dreams of greatness. I'm not trying to be the dad in every movie that says, son, you know, you're just born to be what I am, and you're just going to do this. And the kid says, no, I'm going to do something great. And then he goes off and leaves his family and proves them all wrong. He's the greatest tap dancer to ever live, or whatever it is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it is. So, okay, I'm not trying to be that dad that says, just be normal, and, you know, don't do anything. Don't strive for anything. I'm not trying to squelch anyone's dreams of greatness. I'm just saying, let's allow God to define greatness and not American culture. Man, it's great to live a quiet life, he says. Number two, mind your own affairs. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. The NIV says, mind your own business. Seems like for all their strengths as new believers, some of the Thessalonians were meddling in ways that did not serve or did not help the church's mission. And they really don't get the hint right here. Now, this is a strong church, but they have some issues, and they don't get the hint right here. Because if you turn the page and look at 2 Thessalonians, which means that's the letter he had to write them after 1 Thessalonians, we get a clear picture of what's going on. He has to say the same stuff again. Chapter 3, verse 10 of 2 Thessalonians. It should just be a page or two over for you. For even when we were with you, <clears throat> we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you, <clears throat> this is what we're hearing, that they walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. This is what he's talking about here. Some of the people in Thessalonica, we find out, instead of minding their own business, they're minding other people's business. Instead of being busy at work, they're being busy bodies. They are in other people's business. They, they should be paying attention to themselves, and they're not. This word busybody has the idea of meddling. So these are people who are meddlers. Instead of going to work, they're idle. Or when they are at work and they should be doing their work, they're meddling. These are the people who are consumed with other people's affairs, other people's business. Instead of using their time wisely, they are reading and living in the comments section of blogs. They're making their comments. They're listening. They, they are picking fights on social media. These are trolls. He's saying, don't 
be a troll online. This is what he's saying. Mind your own business. Like you don't have enough responsibility and enough problems. Jesus said each day has enough problems on its own. Why are you out messing in someone else's stuff? Put your head down. You got work to do. Stop stirring up controversy. He's saying these people are busybodies. These are the people who know everything about everybody down at the church. And they'll tell you the juicy details if you just ask them. He's saying that's ridiculous. That is not loving your brother. The whole theme is loving your brother. That's not loving people. And guess what? That's not walking properly before outsiders. You're representing Jesus, and if you are just in other people's business, not paying attention, not minding your own affairs, you are damaging the reputation of Jesus. Mind your own business. Number three, so he starts off, live quietly, mind your own business. Three, work with your hands. Some people are not working in this church, evidently. Work with your hands. Probably they're not working. I'm not going to develop this out, but probably because of bad theology. It's probably because they believe the return of Christ is imminent, so imminent, that it doesn't matter what they do. The reason I say this is because the very next passage is about the coming of the Lord. So verse 13, we'll look at this next week. We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. What happens to people who have died who are waiting for the return of the Lord? And then in chapter 5, just after this, he says in chapter 5, you know, we urge you to admonish the idle. So some of you aren't working, some of you are idle, and in the midst of that, he talks about the return of the Lord. So many speculate that that's probably what they're doing. They're probably saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you do, uh, Jesus is coming back soon, so what does it really matter? But he says, work with your hands. He worked with his hands. Jesus worked with his hands. In their Greek culture, manual work, manual labor was looked down upon by many. It was looked at, that's kind of what slaves do, but those who were powerful enough to own slaves didn't do that. They just sort of hired that out. He's saying, just get your hands dirty. He's not saying that, uh, you know, in our culture, if you don't have a trade, if you don't earn your living through one of the trades, you're sinning. He's not saying that. But he is saying just work faithfully. All work has dignity. Uh, get busy with what you're supposed to be doing so that you don't depend on anyone. And that's what he says in verse 12. Be dependent on no one. In chapter 2, verse 9, he set them an example. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we, would, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So he's saying, hey, remember when we were with you, this is what we did. We worked. Uh, we just read in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, he says, you don't work, you don't eat. So he has a, he's, he's speaking to them about their work ethic, and he's connecting, the context is, this is important, the context is he's connecting work to loving other people. Now, normally when I've spoken about work, uh, I've normally spoken uh, with more of a Godward view of our work, that the idea that from the very beginning God created work, that we see in Genesis that work existed before the fall, that work is not the result of Adam and Eve's sin, work existed before the fall. They were created <clears throat> to tend the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> to plant it, cultivate it, oversee it. When, what the fall did is it made work toilsome and frustrating at points. 
Um, and we pointed out that God is a worker. He creates by the word of his power, and then he rested from his labor, the scripture says. He works to sustain all that is. So normally, when I've talked about work uh, in passages of scripture, I've normally talked about sort of the Godward orientation that we worship God uh, by being faithful in our daily work, whatever that may be, or if you're retired, your volunteer work, whatever we do. Uh, if you're a student, that's your work. But we, we glorify the Lord, and we're working as image bearers of God because He is a worker. All of that is true, and all of that's foundation to a doctrine of work, doctrine of work but that's not what He's talking about here. He's talking about the horizontal nature of work here. Uh, he's talking about the horizontal value So, we not only love God through our work, but we also love our neighbor through our work. Faithfulness in work benefits those inside the church and outside the church, and that's what he's talking about in this passage. One reason you work is to earn money, to to earn money to care for yourself and your family and to help others in need. That's why Paul says in chapter 2, we didn't want to be a burden to you. Why did Paul work? Paul, Paul, why did you work? He would say all that stuff, I trust, if I'm right, that I said about Genesis and created his image bearers and the glory of God and God's worker. I'm sure he would say all that. But in chapter 2, he says, the reason I worked is very simple. I didn't want to be a burden on you. What's he saying? I loved you by working hard. I loved you by working hard. I wasn't idle. Now, there is, the church is to love those who have legitimate need and to provide for them, those who can't work, those who can't find work. But he's not saying that we help people that ignore available work. Those are the idle ones that he is admonishing. So, it's an expression of love to work because it allows us to meet our own needs, and to have something to provide for other people's needs. John Stott says it this way, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to be supported by others. It's an act of love to support others in need, but it's also an act of love to live a quiet life, mind my own business, execute, take care of my own responsibilities so that I am not dependent on anyone else. That is what verse 12 says, walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So our earnings empower us to meet needs. Do you ever think about it that way? You're not just working for a paycheck, you're working for the glory of God, you're working in this act of worship, but you're also working in a way that enables you to meet needs. You meet needs through extending hospitality, through providing directly to the needs of other people, by giving benevolence. He's talking about brotherly love. It's within the church. Now, we give to those outside as well, but here he's talking about inside. It is working so that you are Uh, by God's grace, self-sustaining. None of us are self-sustaining ultimately, but by God's grace, you are self-sustaining. You are able to fund the care for people, the ministry for people in the church. Now, again, there are very legitimate needs 
where it is the church's joy to provide for people. That's Acts 6, the widows who uh, were missing food were provided for. So it is the church's joy to provide. You love other people by providing for them, but you also love other people by seeking to be a blessing and not dependent upon others. There's another reason that a healthy worth ethic pleases the Lord. It provides a good testimony. So work with your own hands as we instructed you. We've already told you this. We're going to tell you this in 2 Thessalonians 3 as well. Um, But we've already told you this so that, why? So that you may walk properly before outsiders. So he's saying as you work, uh, you are providing a testimony and a witness to those who are looking on. Your work life is central to your public faith. When we talk about public faith, it's not, uh, it's not just witnessing, though it is that, in, in verbal ways, you know, it, it's not just that, uh, but it is being faithful in our work. Do your work uh, so that you walk properly before outsiders. For people in the church, uh, what's probably going on here is the church is so loving that there are some people that are idle and are just basically assuming that someone else will take care of me. So the church is loving, you're very loving, some people are idle, some people are busybodies, so how are they living? Well, probably the loving people are taking care of them. But he's saying, don't be dependent on anyone. Stop being a busybody. Go to work. That's what he's saying. Don't be dependent upon others. Work hard. And in their culture, this would have harmed. Why is this tied to outsiders? Because this would have harmed the reputation of the gospel. If people say, oh, he became a Christian. Now he says Jesus is coming back and he's not working. He's just sort of hanging out. And those people down there are taking care of him or her. That, that's a bad reflection on Jesus. Don't blame Jesus that you're a busybody. Don't credit him with that. Uh, That's a bad testimony. One author, John Byron, a a, uh, commentator, said this, our failure to work or shirking our responsibility can bring disgrace on the church. And Paul seems concerned that society should not get the wrong impression of the church. Paul is eager that those who persecute the church have no legitimate grounds for their opposition. By failing to fulfill our own role within society, Christians are in danger of stirring up more anti-Christian rumors and resentment. Christians should be model citizens. There's a degree in which, there's a degree in which living quietly and being faithful allows us to fly under the radar so that when we do wave the, wa- the, the flag that we are followers of Christ, Uh, We haven't diminished our testimony. We haven't ruined our testimony because we haven't brought reproach on ourselves by being idle, busybodies who do not work but, but, but are involved in the affairs of others when we shouldn't be. Christians should be model citizens. What's he saying? He's saying that your boss should say to you, if I could find 100 employees like you, I'd hire them on the spot. That's what you want your boss saying. Because you are of so much value the way you live your life. You want your clients to say, your integrity and your service is unmatched. I deal with a lot of vendors. Nobody provides the service and honesty that you do. You want your coworkers saying, you work hard for the team. 
You put others above yourself. You're willing to sacrifice. You don't care who gets the credit. You love, uh, you, well, they may not use that language, but you know what I'm saying, that you work hard for the team. You want, if you're in a supervisory role, you want your employees to say, you're the best boss I've ever had. You're, you're gracious and you're fair. You're gracious and you're fair. And you challenge me. You help me to, to grow and to develop in my role. What he's at here is your work is the place that you represent Christ. And if you're not working hard there, then, then you're not walking properly before outsiders and missing the greatest opportunity to point people to Christ. The point of this text is that the reputation of Jesus with outsiders hinges upon what kind of workers we are. That's what he's saying. Outsiders, the reputation of the church hinges on what kind of workers Christians are. And if we're saying that Jesus is Lord of all, as they are, they're saying, we have a new king. We're not saying Caesar is king. We're saying Jesus is king. We have a new king. And as Jesus, if he is king of all, then we represent him by living regular lives, being normal believers, faithful to what we're supposed to be faithful to, helping and loving and serving others, but, but not meddling with others. This being the case, our greatest witness is not what happens just when we're in this room, though this is valuable. It, it happens when we are wherever we are for the rest of the week. Paul shows, we could say negatively, that our example is most vulnerable in these places, in our neighborhood, uh, in our job. It is most vulnerable. We can most easily misrepresent. If we take all four, this whole chapter, and we talk about walking properly before outsiders, we can most easily misrepresent Jesus in our sex life and in our work life. And I might add our money as well, because he's talking about here helping others, don't be dependent. So he's talking about how we use our money. So these are the areas where we can misrepresent Jesus very easily. But put, put, put a different way, let's put it positively. We can reflect the glory of God when we are singles who are flourishing in our lives, when we are married couples that are committed to one another and giving a witness to Christ, when we are fruitful and faithful workers, when we give to those in need. These are the ways that we can provide a public faith that is compelling to an on-looking world that already has a list of things, true and false, to accuse us of. We don't add to it here. It, it's really very basic. This chapter is saying, look, if you want to please the Lord and you want to be a good witness, there's largely a few areas to get in line. Get your sex life right. Get your work life right. Get your money right. Those who counsel in the room will tell you that's 90% of the issues right there. You get those right, and, and, and you've got the big, the big items, relationships. I, I put your sex life under marriage or as a single person, relationships, a broader category probably. Get those areas. He's saying this is where you can make a difference. Live quietly, mind your business, do your work. It's shockingly simple. It's shockingly practical. I don't have to give you five ways to do each of those things. You just, we just know them. So let's love one another and let's stay in our lane. This is why Jesus died and rose, to give us new life so that much of our life, it's much of the Christian life is living 
the same, kind, the same life we had before in a new way. It's doing much of the same things in a new way. It's doing much of the same things with a new attitude, with a new motivation, with a new purpose. That's much of what we are doing. It's living an informed life of discipleship in all that we do so that each of the things, each of the areas of our life now connects to Christ as our king, whereas before it connected to me and what's best for me. So he's saying don't burn energy on being a busybody. Burn energy on what matters, being faithful to what God's called each of us to do, to love our neighbor, to be a witness to those that don't know him, and to provide for those in need around us. There's a good question to ask about this. How does faithfulness on my job allow me to love my church family better? That's part of what he's talking about here. How can I love my church family better by being faithful on my job? How can I represent Jesus to outsiders by being faithful on my job? This is what he's saying. Walk properly before outsiders depend on no one. Why? So that you can love your brothers. So think inside, outside. How how can my, how can staying, living a normal, quiet life, how can focusing on what God's called me to focus on, how can, mind my own business, how can my job, how can that bless and help those that God has called me to in the church, and how can that help my witness for those who are looking on and wondering, what does it mean that Jesus died and rose to give us new life and make us new people? I love how eminently simple how eminently practical that when the gospel invades our life, it empowers us to focus for the glory of God. And much, much, much is accomplished through faithful people who are holding out an ambition to live quietly, who are minding their own business in the Lord, responsible for what he has made us responsible for, and who are working hard to glorify God and love others. This is what he's called us to. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.